so if you uh, do have your Bible, please turn to Revelation 3. If you don't have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen. And there should also be a Bible in the, the seat. There's like a little, I don't know what you call that, the seat pouch in front of you. Okay, it's right below on the bottom of the seat there. Uh, there should be a hardback black one at some point in your row. Uh, if you can't reach one, just nudge on your neighbor to reach that for you. Uh, so if you guys are uh, get there, as you're turning there, if you guys would please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> So providence, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, and welcome to Providence. And my name is Joseph, and I am one of the pastors here. It is a joy to gather with you all this morning. So whether you're a Christian, not sure you're a Christian, or sure you're not a Christian, uh, I want you to know that my prayer, anytime that I get up and, and share God's word, is that you would be confronted with the truth of his word and compelled to respond to it in worship and faith and obedience. And so I know that in a gathering like this, there's some people that maybe aren't um, really established in your relationship with Christ or you're, uh, you're certainly sure that you, that you don't believe in Christ. And so uh, the things that we're talking about this morning come from the scriptures, which is, of course, the, the, <clears throat> the source to which Christians look for truth. And so uh, you have room to disagree in this place. You don't have to participate in everything we're doing. I want you to know that, but I do want you to know that I have been praying for you and people have been praying for you that God would speak to you this morning. And so I want to pray again right now before I get into the word. Uh, to that end. So if you guys would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace and we humble ourselves in your sight, God. We petition you by the blood of your son, Jesus, to open our eyes and our ears, God, so that we could hear and see the truth of your word. God, open our hearts so that we would respond to your word in repentance and faith. God, we know that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. It says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. God, that the spiritual things are discerned and are disclosed by the Spirit. And so, God, I pray for the Spirit to come and work in our midst. And Father, please, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you fill us this morning? Uh, we're commanded in Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, God, I pray that you would fill us this morning so that our response will be one of all-filled worship and joy-filled obedience. And we ask these things in the saving name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. All right, so the title of the message this morning is called The Church That Jesus Longs For, and we are 
obviously coming out of Revelation chapter 3, reading verse 14 through 21, which is actually a church, uh, the church at Laodicea, which is, is a church that Jesus actually had a very strong rebuke and critique towards. So uh, what we are going to be doing as we step into this passage, as we seek to understand it and how it would apply to us today, uh, we are going to be looking at uh, the, the antithesis of the church at Laodicea, which would be the church that Jesus longs for. And so in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, before we get into my first point, I want to lay out a little bit of uh, kind of why we're studying this passage in light of the sermon series that we find ourselves in. And so last week we began a sermon series called Revival, and we are essentially exploring the theme of revival uh, from the Bible and then throughout history, this, this concept, this idea that at times God in an extraordinary way, pours out his spirit among his people, and he intensifies his work and his presence and his power and his activity amongst a group of people for a, a, a certain amount of time. Now, if you've studied revivals historically, typically revivals don't last. They don't last forever, and sometimes in revivals there's also some manipulation and abuse that occurs in those um, but nonetheless, it seems that both from the scriptures in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the wave of movement that happened after that, and then also throughout select times in church history, God does indeed at times come down and manifest his power and presence amongst his people in a unique and powerful way. And so I want us to be very, very clear as to why we would even explore this theme, why we would take time to preach about it. And I think it's important for us to be able to see our need for spiritual awakening and spiritual renewal in our church, in our community, in our city, in our state, in our nation, in our world. I think it's important for us to see our need for God to again condescend, which means to come down in power and make his power and presence known to us in a way that draws people to him. Now, I want to I make this very, very clear. The reason that we pray for revival is not because we're discontent with God's ordinary means of grace that he's already made available to us. It's not why we pray for revival. Uh, if God doesn't show up and, and uh, give us kind of what Jonathan Edwards calls a surprising work of God, if there's not a surprising work of God among us by his spirit, we're not going to be a people that are essentially left to ourselves. We have the power of the Holy Spirit made available to us through God's ordinary means of grace. We can experience his grace as it is, through the preaching of God's word, through the study of the scriptures, through prayer, through the sacraments, all of those things. So we don't pray for revival because we are discontent with what God has already given to us. We also don't pray for revival just because we want all of the hype and the emotionalism and sensationalism that can come along with it. Because like I said, that can be abusive. And Jonathan Edwards himself said that hype along with revival doesn't necessarily mean that anything actually happened. The way that we know that revival truly occurred is that men and women's lives have truly been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they repented of their sin, put their faith in Jesus, and from now on their lives have been changed. That's how we know that there was a powerful work or surprising work of God among us. So why then will we pray for revival? A few points. Number one, because cultural Christianity, which we'll talk about quite a bit in this sermon today, can be a deceptive substitute for saving faith in Jesus. And revival exposes the real nature of our relationship with God. Cultural Christianity, what does that mean? Well, we live in a part of the country um, that has many churches. 
uh, Houston is actually the city that has more megachurches per capita than any other city in the United States. We have a lot of large churches. We have a lot of churches that are populated with a lot of people in this city. There are churches with 30,000 people, 20,000 people, 18,000 people, 15,000 people, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8,000. They're, they're all over the place. Pretty much in every suburb, there are mega churches with thousands of people. And then out from those mega churches, there are tons of other smaller churches, right? Methodist churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, charismatic churches, Assemblies of God churches, Pentecostal churches, Bible churches. There are churches, 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 right? You can drive down any road. As a matter of fact, I remember whenever I used to work at a church in Humble, I, I one time counted the number of churches that I passed from my commute from Kingwood into Humble, and it was like 17 churches that I would pass just to get to work, and my commute was only about 13 minutes. There are churches everywhere in this area, but you know what there's not a lot of? Awakening. There's not a lot of spiritual transformation. Now, there's a lot of people attending church, but as we see in a lot of historic revivals, what happens whenever God comes down in a unique and powerful way is it starts to change not just the spiritual landscape of the community, but it starts to change the social landscape of the community. People's lives are transformed. The way that they live is transformed. And so we live in an area where there is a lot of church activity, but not necessarily where there is a lot of spiritual power being manifest in our community. And there's a difference. And cultural Christianity can be a deceptive substitute for saving faith in Jesus. Means we can get so caught up in, in norms and practices and rituals and rites and all of those things that essentially they lose the, we, we lose touch with their original intent and meaning, which is to point us to Christ and to expose to us our need for Christ. But I believe that there are probably a lot of people in our area that are Christian in name only, which means they are nominal but they are not Christian in the way that they live their lives. Jesus is not truly the Lord of their lives. And so we pray for revival because revival exposes nominalism and actually calls people to saving faith, sometimes for the very first time. People who thought that they were saved but truly weren't end up getting saved by God's grace. The second reason we pray for revival is because the church has become, in a lot of ways, complacent in its devotion to the purposes of God. Now we'll talk about this again a little bit more in the sermon, but when the church becomes complacent in its devotion to the purposes of God, essentially we lose touch with what it is that God has called us to, who he's called us to be as his people, what he's called us to do. And so we pray for revival because we believe revival awakens sleepy Christians to our purpose, to what it is that he's called us to do, who it is that he's called us to be. Sometimes we can be Christian and we can truly be Christian, but we can go through the, the rites and the rituals and all of those things so much so and, and also disconnect them from their purpose, their intent, and their meaning that we can kind of fall asleep. We can become spiritually lethargic. We can become lazy in our pursuit of Jesus. Anyone ever experienced this? Or you kind of become lazy in your, in your pursuit of Jesus. Now listen, if you become lazy long enough, then you can fall asleep. And what revival does is it awakens sleepy Christians. What Dr. Tim Keller at Redeemer in New York City said is that revival awakens sleepy Christians. It reveals nominalism. And the third reason we would pray for revival also, Dr. Keller pointed to this, is because, now I'm using our language for it though, is because it's too easy to ignore the gospel in our city, and it should not be so. We say our vision as a church is to make the gospel unignorable in our city, and in my opinion, we have made it a little bit too easy to ignore the gospel. So what revival does is it brings 
an invigorated power to the people of God so that we would actually live out our redemptive purpose. And for this church, we say that we want to make the gospel unignorable. And so what a revival would do for us is it would truly empower us and send us out into the community in such a way that the gospel would truly become unignorable. That like we talked about last week in the revivals, like the the New York City revival, the the layman's prayer revival, or when we talk about the Welsh revival that happened, that the number of people increased greatly. The number of people that came to know Jesus increased greatly. And that looked very similar to Acts chapter 2, verse 47, where it says that day by day, God was adding to their number those who were being saved. So what happens in revival is the church is invigorated. It is enlivened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we go out and our evangelism becomes effective. And people come to know Jesus. And it's the third reason that Dr. Keller said that we need revival is because he says people who seemed hard to reach or almost impossible to reach come to saving faith in Christ in revival. So why would we pray for revival? It's not that we're discontent with what God has already given us. It's not that we want the hype and the emotionalism and all the sensations and all the feels and all of those things. It's because we ourselves as a local church realize that we need to be awakened. That some of us have grown so lethargic that we need to experience a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned in my prayer earlier, chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, present tense active verb, which means that you can and should be consistently filled with the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said in John 7, that the Holy Spirit would be like rivers of living water, constantly flowing in and channeling in and through our lives. But sometimes when we disconnect ourselves from the source of our life, from spiritual life, then we can become sleepy or lethargic or complacent or apathetic towards the purposes of God, and we can lose or fall away from the way in which he's called us to. Now, if there is any portion of Scripture in the Bible that should sober us up and cause us to consider our need for God's Spirit to revive his people, it's the one that we read this morning, amen? And just reading that passage makes my heart heavy. And as I've been preparing for this sermon this week, and as I asked God, whenever we were writing out these sermon series back in November, I asked God to give a text to kind of make this point clear for us. And I, and I considered Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. I thought, man, that is a heavy passage, and, and just reading it makes my heart heavy. But hopefully, like it says in 2 Corinthians, my heart would be heavy, filled with a godly grief that leads to repentance, not a worldly grief that leads to sorrow, right? So whenever I read this passage, my heart is heavy and I feel sorrow for the state of the church. But it's not a worldly sorrow. It's the kind of sorrow that leads me to repentance myself and say, God, I know that my own life, in my own life, I have in many ways become lukewarm and I need your spirit. To animate, to animate my heart and to breathe new life into me. Now, a few things about the church at Laodicea before we get into our first point, um, because they, they make their way into kind of the content of what Jesus is saying, is that the church at Laodicea was located in Asia Minor, which is kind of modern-day Greece and Turkey. It was not too far from the church at Colossae, which we have, we know a lot about the church at Colossae through the book of Colossians. Uh, the, the city of Laodicea was known for its banking and trading industry and its export of an expensive black wool and eyes have that healed a common sight problem at that time. All right, so back then, uh, you just think about like dry eyes. 
I lived in a, in a kind of a desertous area, and so eye salve was very important. People would actually go blind if they didn't have the salve to put on their eyes. And so the Laodiceans actually created this eye salve for people. It was medicinal, and it became very popular. They exported it. They also exported that black wool because back then, white wool was pretty common to come across. Black wool was very rare, and so it was a very expensive export uh, uh, trade industry that they had. But unlike most other cities, Laodicea didn't have its own water source. Many other cities, whenever they were founded, they were founded close to a water source and for good reason. But the La- or Laodicea had to have water piped in from two different locations. There was water piped in from a nearby city called Heropolis, and Heropolis had a hot water spring, and so water would be piped down to uh, the church or to the city at Laodicea. And then they also received water from another source at a city called Colossae, and that was a cold spring. And they kind of built this this or channeled this river down. But what's unique about each of these things, the the banking and the trading and the exports and the water source, is that all of these factors make their way into Jesus' rebuke of the church in the city at Laodicea. And we'll talk about those here in a moment. But the first point that I have, and I want us to really pay attention to this one because it sets the stage for the rest of them, is the first point that I have is that I want us to, before we can talk about the church that Jesus longs for, we first need to understand the church that Jesus laments over. The church that Jesus laments over is like the church at Laodicea. Now, let's see what happened with the church at Laodicea. Now, mind you, because the lights are out up here, I'm kind of having to stand back here and feel a little bit uh, like my, my, uh, my mom here. Or she's always reading something. She's got to, like, turn towards the light and tilt the head and bend the glasses. That's, that's me right now. Uh, but our team has worked very, very hard to try and get the lights working. We're, we're going to have to... Uh, put more work into it tomorrow, though. But Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, it reads like this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. What Jesus is doing in verse 14 is he is essentially establishing his authority over the church to speak the words that he's about to say to them. And in verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot, exclamation point. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now the church that Jesus laments over is a church that is like the church at Laodicea who had seemingly disconnected from its source of life and power and it had drifted from its purpose. How do we know that? Because Jesus says that the state of this church is that it is lukewarm. He says, I would rather you be hot. I would rather you be cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now the Greek word there is the word emetia, which is where we get emetus, which means to vomit or to be, to be nauseated. So Jesus is literally saying, because you are lukewarm, I am nauseated by you. Now just pause for a second. Within your theological framework and how you view the scriptures and how you read the New Testament, like, can you consider just for a moment that this is scary? That it's possible for Jesus, the one who redeemed your soul and ransomed you by his blood, even though you have been adopted into the family of God and been called sons and daughters of God, that there is a way in which we can live our lives as a church that would actually make him nauseated by our activity? Is that not frightening? 
just to consider for a moment. That though, yes, we will experience, for those of us who are in Christ, that we will experience the glories of the new heavens and the new earth, and we will be in the presence of God forever, that while we are in that already not yet tension of the kingdom having been inaugurated but not completely fulfilled, that as we seek to live out God's purpose in our lives, we can live in such a way that actually makes him nauseated by us. That is terrifying to me. Again, not that I sit under the fear of condemnation, but that I have to live with the fact that I could live my life in such a way that actually makes the one who gave his life for me dissatisfied in the way that I'm living. Dissatisfied in the way that the church is living. So the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, I would rather you be hot or cold. Now, some commentators are divided over what's going on here. Um, Some will say, clearly what Jesus is saying is that he would rather them be hot, as in like white hot in their devotion to him, and he would rather them be this very spiritually zealous people, or he would rather them be cold, which means essentially he would rather them be spiritually dead. Now, we know why Jesus would want a church to be hot, right? Devoted to him zealously with power and all of those things. But why would Jesus ever want a church to be cold? Well, some commentators will say the reason that Jesus would want us to be cold is because dead people, people that are cold, whenever the Holy Spirit comes and enlivens your heart and and awakens you and causes you to, to move from death to life, like Ephesians 2 says, most of the time people that are lost know that they're lost, there's a framework of lostness, of coldness for you to, rec- to, for you to wrestle with. But when we're lukewarm, we sometimes don't know whether or not we're cold or hot. We're kind of ignorant of our spiritual condition. So some commentators say what Jesus really wants is he wants people to either be zealously devoted to his glory in white-hot devotion, or he would rather them be completely spiritually cold, dead, stale, so that way they could be enlivened for the first time. But the one condition he doesn't want us in is this kind of mushy middle, this nominal state where maybe we are Christian by name, but not Christian by practice or not Christian by devotion. But other commentators disagree. They, they diverge from that point and they say, if you read it in its context, because the water that was coming from Hierapolis was hot water and the water that was coming from Colossae was cold water, but in both water sources, they had to travel so far. By the time it reached Colossae, it had become lukewarm. They're saying what Jesus is saying to them is, just like your water source, by the time it gets to you, it's neither hot nor cold anymore. It has become tepid. It has become lukewarm. And tepid water back then was oftentimes filled with bacteria. And if you would drink it, it would make you sick and you would vomit it out. So other commentators are saying what what Jesus is really getting at here is that your spiritual condition is tepid, it's infectious, it's unhealthy, it's stagnant. And when I consider your spiritual state, it's not helpful to me. Cold water was helpful. It was refreshing. Cold springs that you could draw from. Hot water was helpful. It was purifying and used for medicinal purposes. Lukewarm water essentially had no purpose in that time. If anything, it could make you sick from it. And so what, there's, what some commentators are getting at is they're saying what Jesus is really, the rebuke he's really bringing to this church is that they had become so spiritually stagnant that they were effectively useful, useless in the kingdom of God. They had been rendered impotent. They weren't useful in his hands to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth that he had called them to. Now, 
The church at Laodicea had certainly become complacent, apathetic, and different. And as a result, Jesus threatens to vomit the church out of his mouth because of their spiritual stagnancy. Because, listen, the purpose of a local church, the purpose of a local church is to be the very presence of Christ in the world. Amen? We're called the body of Christ. All right? When Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven, he took his body with him. When he came and condescended again on the day of Pentecost, he filled a new body. The body of Christ, the local church, right? We are to be a manifestation of God's presence in the world. We are called to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus by being a resurrected people, a people who have been called from death to life or delivered from death to life. Now, I need, I need us to see the gravity of what Jesus is getting at here. If he's essentially saying to this church that you have been, you're so spiritually stagnant that you have been rendered useless, then we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that when you become a Christian, that means that God has a use for your life. <laughs> Do you know that? Like, one of the worst things that you could believe as far as salvation is concerned is to believe that the entire point of your salvation was just to get you to heaven. That's where we end up. That's the reward. That's the experience is that we get to be with Jesus. But listen, the redemptive plan of God is not about him going and picking out isolated individuals and then just rapturing them up into heaven. The redemptive plan of God is that he would ransom a people unto himself and that people would be a blessing to the nations. This is the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 20 that we read about, that he would call his people out and we would be a blessed people, and we would be a blessing to other people. And you see this refrain throughout all of biblical theology, is that God is calling a people unto himself, a people to whom he would reveal his glory, and through whom he would reveal his glory to the world. And so when you become a Christian, and 1 Corinthians 12 says that you are now baptized into the body of Christ, that means that you now belong to a new family with a new purpose and a new identity, and that identity is to make the gospel unignorable. That call is to make the gospel unignorable. And when we do not live out that purpose, and when we do not seek to fulfill the redemptive plan of God as his people in the local church, we are rendered useless in the hands of Jesus. Listen, human time as we know it exists because of the redemptive plan of God. If God wanted to be done with humanity, he could have been done with humanity after Genesis 6, right? But he decided to save humanity. And consistently, ongoingly, he has decided to spare humanity from his wrath. In John 3, verse 17, it says, Jesus came not into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved, right? So the entire reason that even humanity exists, the reason that time exists, the space that we're in right now exists, is because of the redemptive plan of God. And listen, if the people of God are not the ones living out the redemptive plan of God, then what hope does the world have? So, Jesus has a serious and scathing rebuke to the church at Laodicea because they had become complacent, lukewarm, and spiritually stagnant. 
And Jesus warned us about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he calls his people to be salt and light. Remember this? John 5, or Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Then he says, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness except to be thrown out and trampled on by people's feet? Jesus warns us that this is a possibility, that we can be called to be salt, but we can actually lose our saltiness. That we can be called to be light, but we can actually seek to hide the light underneath a bushel or underneath a basket. Jesus warns us as his people that this is a possibility for us. And so what he's doing is he's essentially keeping his word at the church at Laodicea. And he's saying, you lost your saltiness. You lost your light. And it nauseates me. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen? A church can lose its saltiness. A church can become spiritually stagnant or lukewarm when we become more concerned with the same pursuits of everyone else in our city rather than the unique purpose as the people of God. What happened at the church at Laodicea, the reason why Jesus rebukes them in the way that he does is because it's clear that the Laodicean people had been caught up in the same pursuits as everyone else in the city, but they had forsaken their unique purpose as the people of God. They had been caught up in the trade industry. They had been caught up in the economic industry. They had been caught up in all of those things. And listen, it's not bad for us to have vocations and do all of those things. But when they consume our lives and they take priority and precedent in our lives over the purpose of God for your life, that's whenever God has a problem with it. He has given us our vocations. He has given us our families. He has given us all that we have so that those things might be stewarded and used for his glory and the good of other people. And when we turn the things that God has given us inwardly on ourselves and we use them explicitly for ourselves and not for the good of his kingdom and not for the good of others, then again, it makes him nauseated. Is anyone out there? It's quiet. I understand it's a heavy passage and I understand I'm not lit up right now, right? You can't see the Shekinah up here right now. But listen, listen, listen. This is, this is, uh, wait, that was, this kind of actually is up here. It's just emanating from my iPad. I just don't have it bright enough that it's, you know, illuminating. I'm just, I'm being ridiculous. But listen, the Laodiceans did what most, I don't want to say most, what many Christians in our cultural context do. Their pursuit of God became a fragment of their life, but not the center of it. (laughs) Their pursuit of Jesus became a part of their life, but not the center of it. And again, over and over and over again throughout the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, Jesus warns us about what happens. Jesus promises that when we seek first his kingdom, all that we ask for will be added to us, right? Have you ever considered what happens when we don't seek first his kingdom? I can read you some Old Testament texts. I can even read you some New Testament texts. One that comes to mind is Haggai chapter 1. We might be reading it in a few weeks where Jesus says, Have you ever wondered why you're hungry and yet you're never satisfied? Have you ever wondered why, you're, you're, or why you eat and you're never satisfied, you're never filled? Have you ever wondered why you drink and you're never satisfied? Have you ever wondered why when you take money and put it into your money bags, it seems like it has holes in it? God rebukes the children of Israel. He says, it's essentially because rather than devoting yourself to building my house, you spent time building your own house and you allowed my house to lie in ruins. 
When we don't seek first God and his kingdom, when we don't seek first the things that he has called us to, and when we, don't, when we aren't obedient to what he has said in his word, then it grieves him. And so what can happen to us, brothers and sisters, is rather than being consumed by the gospel, we can become inoculated to it. A friend of mine who pastors the church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, he says this regularly, or at least he used to say this regularly, and he also lives in kind of a, a, a cultural environment much like ours where there are churches everywhere. He says the problem in our area is that many people are inoculated to the gospel of Jesus, which means, you know, you get a vaccination, like the flu vaccine, they, they inject you with just a little bit of the flu, the virus, in hopes that you won't catch the full-blown flu. So what happens with many of us in our, or many people in our cultural context is they get just enough of Jesus that they become satisfied with that, but they get just enough that they'll never actually experience the fullness of all he came and promised us. So the first thing that we need to not acknowledge if we're going to truly see the church that Jesus might lament over is, brothers and sisters, that it is possible to be a Christian. It is even possible to be lukewarm. It's possible for us for our hearts to wander and to become numb and to become lifeless and to become dull and to lack the zeal and the love of Jesus. And when we notice this in our hearts and in the culture of our church, listen, brothers and sisters, it should grieve us. Why should it grieve us? Because it grieves Jesus. It grieves the one who ransomed us. It grieves the one who redeemed us. It grieves the one who seeks to renew us by the power of his Holy Spirit. It grieves him. This is what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. Is to know that God is speaking to you and to know that God is asking you to obey him or calling you to obey him, but choosing instead to be stubborn, obstinate, and rebellious and ignore his voice. It grieves the Holy Spirit when that happens. And so listen, this should not only grieve us personally, but this should grieve us corporately. Because as I said earlier, the, the, the redemptive purpose of God isn't all about him just going and isolating and picking out individual people and getting you into heaven. If that was true, then the best thing that could have happened to you immediately after you became a Christian is that you were raptured up to heaven, right? But that's not what happened. Biblically, it says that what happens whenever you are baptized and you profess faith in Christ and all of those things, that you become a part of his church. And then once you're yoked into a church, you become the temple of God. Cornerstone being Jesus. Now we ourselves are like living stones being built up around the cornerstone whereby we are meant to be a temple for the presence and power of God to be manifest and to be made known in the world. And so when you become a Christian, you're not just left in isolated, um, you're not left to this isolated existence whereby you're seeking to follow Jesus all by yourself up on the journey of the, the mountaintop to spiritual whatever zeal and victory. No, you're called into a body of people. You're called into a church. And you're to live out his redemptive purpose in your life. And when a local church does not live out its redemptive purpose, listen, it should grieve all of us corporately that we're not living out to our potential and what God has called us to. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, do we realize what the church is? He says, this is Zion. This is God's dwelling place. 
God has made her for himself. He has brought her into being even at the cost of his blood or the blood and death of his own son. So are we concerned about the state of the church? Surely we must admit, many of us, that we are so occupied with ourselves and our own personal problems and difficulties, all that we talk so much about, that we never stop for a moment to look at the church objectively and see her and begin to mourn because of her condition. Now, if you like to study your Bible, go and study in the Old Testament what Zion is and what Zion means to the heart of God. And you understand that it's true that the, the, the church is meant to be Zion, a dwelling place for the presence and power of God. And when the church ceases to be that and ceases to live out that redemptive potential, then it is something to be grieved. I got a couple of points really quickly, and then I'm going to try and get us to something that I think is, is, is unique for our church. And um, hopefully God, like he did in the earlier gathering, will use it. Um, to stir our affections and to lead us to repentance. But a couple of things, because I want us to consider how did, the, how did the Laodiceans get here? How can we ourselves sometimes find ourselves in this place? And there's a couple of points that I see in the scriptures. Number one, or second point of the sermon, is that the Laodicean church had become a self-reliant church. And when we become self-reliant, we actually act not as a magnet drawing the favor of God, we act as a deterrent of the favor of God. Let's see this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see And God says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So what had happened to the Laodicean church is that they had become self-reliant. They had gotten to this point to where they had said, I am prosperous and I need nothing. Our prosperity can actually be a deterrent and can be a distraction from our spiritual health if we allow our prosperity to draw us away from God, if we allow the things that we have been given from him to replace our devotion to him, how do we know that we have become self-reliant? I'll give you one quick one. Prayer. Our prayer life is a clear indicator of our reliance upon God or our lack thereof. When we cease to pray for and live in a way that makes us dependent upon God in our everyday lives, we, are, we essentially become a self-reliant and prideful people. Listen, this is the definition of what pride is biblically. Pride is not needing God. It's not recognizing your need for God. It's thinking that you can do or live your life without God. It's what pride is. And so pride, as we see in Scripture in James chapter 4, pride is what repels the presence of God in our lives. James says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
can you, like, to have God resist you, to have God put his arm out because of your pride. Because here's what happens. Here's, here's what happens. We live our lives as though we don't need God, then all of a sudden we need him. And then what do we do? In a moment of crisis, we turn to him and we plead and we say, God, help me. And then when he doesn't answer in the exact way that we thought he should answer, then we say, God, where are you? And the cycle continues. Rather than living our lives in a way in which we are, there's this steady state, ongoing, frequent dependence, which is what Jesus called us to in his, in, his, in his prayer. And we now call the Lord's prayer, right? He says, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Which means, God, we need you today. May we live our lives as though we need you right now, today. And without you, we will starve. One of the first steps towards becoming a complacent or a lukewarm church, lukewarm church is to allow the prayer life of a church to dry up. If we're not a praying people, if we're not a dependent people, then we are well on our way to lukewarmness. And Jesus indicts this church here because they believed that they didn't need him because of all that they had been given from him. He had given them the opportunities to live in that city. He had given them the opportunities to be involved in that trade and to make money and to do all of those things. But rather than thanking God for the opportunities and seeing those things as a means to draw their affections towards God, they put all of their affections into the things that God had given them instead. They had become self-reliant. Brothers and sisters, have we become self-reliant? This is a fun hypothetical exercise that I sometimes put before people. And what I mean by fun is really convicting and hard to hear. We know that we become self-reliant as a church. If I say this Saturday, we're going to offer a seminar. And that seminar is going to be on how to be a better parent, how to be a gospel parent or a gospel husband or a gospel wife or a gospel steward or a gospel whatever, you know, what Something with the word gospel attached to it to make it sound more attractive and Christ-centered, right? We say, there's going to be this seminar, and basically we're going to give you all this information on how to make your life better, but with the gospel at the center of it. You know what happens? Register, 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 register. You know what happens hypothetically? Hypothetically, remember. Not necessarily saying this is exactly what happens, but I'm saying what could happen. You say, this Saturday morning, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a prayer meeting. You know what's on the agenda? Prayer. Let's go Register. Like three people show up. And you're like, that's an outrageously cynical pastor. I'm, I'm only saying it because in the life of many churches, this bears out as truth. And in the life of, and I haven't, I haven't done this test, okay? Now some of you are going to be like, I know that if Joe ever calls a prayer meeting, we better all show up or else he's going to think that we're spiritually dead and lifeless. No, no, that's not the point. Not the point. I'm not trying to manipulate you up here or anything like that. I'm trying to, to put before you a litmus test. Dependency. Self-reliance. The way that we know that we're on our way to becoming self-reliant and eventually becoming lukewarm is that we disconnect from God. When it says in James that, yes, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But you know what else he says? If you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. 
There's a promise there. The second point is not only that they were a self-reliant church, but they were, or the third point, sorry, is that they were a self-deceived church. Jesus says to them in verse 17, <laughs> says, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But Jesus says, you think that you've got everything all together. You think that nothing is wrong. But he says, but you don't see that there's actually something desperately wrong here. You have become deceived. Do you know the scariest thing about deception? You don't know that you're being deceived. Or else it wouldn't be called deception. It would be called something else. Knowledge, right? But you don't know that you're being deceived. And so what's scary about the Laodicean church is they're in this lukewarm state and they don't even think they're in this lukewarm state. They're looking around at all that God had given them and they're like, isn't this great? Look at this life. Look at this city. Look at this booming economy. Look at all of this stuff that God has given us. Isn't this fantastic? Isn't this wonderful? God must be favored and delighted in us because look at how much we're prospering. Which is why I want to say, and this is not, I'm, I'm not taking this, this moment really to take a jab at any one particular preacher or movement or anything like that, but listen, prosperity is not an indicator of God's favor on your life. If according to scripture it says that there is danger in riches, there is danger in money, there is danger in greed, then prosperity might be one of the scariest things that God could ever give you because you need to steward it well or else it could distract you from him deeply. Prosperity can be very deceptive because you think, oh, look at all this stuff that I've got. Look at the city that we live in. Look at how good things are going. God must be excited and delighted in what we're doing, but in fact, he's not. And we can be deceived into thinking that, and it's a scary, scary thing, brothers and sisters. The Laodiceans couldn't see their spiritual state for what it truly was. Why? For the same reason we oftentimes can't see ours. We justify our spiritual apathy because of the things God has given us and our commitments to those things. Things like work, things like marriage, things like kids, things like hobbies, things like finances, all of these things that God gives to us as a means of his grace. We can become so devoted to those things that we can justify our spiritual apathy because of those things have you ever said, I'm so tired, work is this, my wife is that, my kids are crazy, I'm losing my mind, we're behind on bills, the car's broken down, the this, the that, the other, right? We just have this laundry list and this litany of things that distracts us from pursuing God. And if we're not careful, we can actually justify our spiritual condition because of those things. But here's what Jesus knows and here's what I know as well having been in pastoral ministry for, I don't know, 17 years, something like that, 16 years, that we begin to believe that we are the exceptions to the rule. We start to look at all that's going on in our lives and we start to think that we're the exception. But here's what he knows, here's what I know. It's that even in our busyness and even in our fatigue, because we are worshiping creatures and because we will seek to worship something and derive worth from something, even in, our, even in our tired and frustrated and busy state, we are still drawing life from somewhere. 
For some of us, when we're tired, the way that we draw life from something other than God is we just sit down in front of the TV and we binge watch for a few hours. Like, ah, I need to unplug. Let me just sit down and watch whatever Netflix series just came out. Or some of us, whenever we're tired, it's like, no, I don't want TV on. I want a glass of wine or a shot of whiskey or a 12-pack, depending upon how rowdy the kids were that day. Or some of us, it's not that. It's like, I just need to go be out with, I need, I need to go, honey, can you, can you give me some time? I need, I need to go hang out with my friends. And what we need, really need to do is we need to go hang out with our friends and just gossip and talk badly about how everything's going on in our lives. We need to vent. And that's the way in which we, see, we try and seek to draw life into our weary souls. Listen, we're worshiping creatures. We're going to be pouring ourselves out, and we're going to be looking to be poured into. So even whenever we're tired, even whenever our marriage is falling apart, and even whenever our kids are difficult, and even whenever we're working way too much, we're still pouring ourselves out and seeking to be poured into. The question is, where are we going? Are we going to Jesus? Are we going to the rivers of living water that he offered in John 7? Or are we turning to other things? Or worse, are we turning inwardly to ourselves? Now, the dangerous thing that can happen here is that if we turn to other things for too long, we can actually get to this place to where our hearts become hardened to the voice of God. I don't have time to read the passage this time around, but Hebrews 3, verse 7 through 15, it, it's a warning. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Hebrews 3, 7 through 15, there's a warning there. And the warning is this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. What can happen to us as brothers and sisters, we can get so busy, we can get so caught up in our worldly affairs and the things that we're pursuing that God can actually be speaking to us. He can be saying, slow down. He can be saying, stop that. He can be saying, turn around. He can be saying, look at me. That's one of the things that happens when my nine-year-old is being disobedient and he's not listening to me is I have to kind of chase him down sometimes because he gets so worked up and everything. I have to chase him down and I have to slow him down. I have to slow down my tone of voice and I have to square him up and I have to say, Elijah, look at me when I'm talking to you and he wants to turn his eyes away. Look at me when I'm talking to you and he wants to turn his eyes away. And so what I've, I've gotten into the habit of doing in the past couple years is I will make him stand right in front of me and I will hold his hands. And I will say, I am not letting go of your hands until you look at me. You can sit there and you can flop and you can flail and you can be all upset and you can whine. And I will sit right here on this couch with you until you lock eyes and you look at me and you hear what dad has to say to you. And that's what God will do to us, brothers and sisters. He will say, I'm not letting go until you look at me. But some of us, for so long, we have been, God has been reaching out to us and speaking to us and trying to say something to us, but we have been sometimes passively, sometimes actively ignoring his voice in our lives and our hearts have become more and more hardened to hear it. So Hebrews gives us a warning. If you hear God's voice, don't carry on without stopping and listening. And some of us, we get into this place of self-deception when we get to the point that we stop hearing God's voice and listen, the spiritual life starts to get sucked out of us at that point when God says to turn left, but we decide to go right. When God says to stay, but we decide to go. Or God says to go, but we decide to stay. Or God says, you need to break up with her, but you decide to stay with her. 
Or God says, I don't want you in this job anymore. And you decide to stay anyway because you can't trust him enough for another one. Or God says, I don't want you in this environment anymore. I want you here. Or God says this. And and basically, our hearts can get to this place to where they become hardened and we become self-deceived whenever God speaks to us by his spirit, through his word, and we ignore his voice and prompting. And so the Laodicean church, they didn't see their need. They couldn't see their nakedness. They couldn't see just how desperate they were before God. And I pray it's not so for us. Before we close, I want to say a few points on the last thing. It's the how and what, or what and how. What is the church that Jesus longs for? How do we become the church that Jesus longs for? It's pretty simple, brothers and sisters. Jesus says this. In verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Listen, very simply, the way that we become the church that Jesus longs for is when he knocks, we open. When he speaks, we listen. What he says to do, we actually do. We grow lukewarm when we sit and we consume sermons and we consume Bible studies and we consume and we consume and we consume, but we're not obedient to what we have heard. We grow lukewarm. We grow tepid. We grow stagnant. We grow complacent. We become a cesspool where water is channeling in, but it's not channeling out. So if we're ever going to be the church that Jesus longs for, the thing that he is really rebuking the Revelation church for is that, yes, they had become self-reliant. They weren't relying upon him. They had become self-deceived. They, they couldn't see the truth of who God was and how desperately they needed him. But more than that, they had become this church that stopped obeying his voice and living out the redemptive purpose of his kingdom in their lives. So the church that Jesus longs for, brothers and sisters, is a church that is deeply connected to the power, presence, and purpose of God. It is a church that celebrates the beauty of the gospel with joy, joy and life. And it is a church that invites everyone to drink from the well of living water that Jesus has come to offer. And so listen, we're going to sing a song here in a minute. Uh, it's a song that I asked Brennan to sing. And for the first chorus, um, I'd like for everyone to... Just stay in your seats and reflect upon the words. But after the first chorus or so, Brendan is going to extend an invitation to you guys, and this is the invitation. The invitation is for you to come forward and to be prayed for. The invitation is for our church to come forward and corporately confess and repent of our sins, to repent of our apathy, our indifference, and perhaps our lukewarmness. The invitation is for us to come down and to be prayed for, but to pray for one another. Now, I want to be clear. In inviting you to come down and pray here, there's nothing special about this little slab of concrete right here. It's not like this is where the Holy Spirit is. You guys are out there cast out from his presence when you step down here, that's where he's really going to be working. It's not what this is about. 
I'm not trying to appeal to your emotions or incite a specific response. So if you don't feel coming down, comfortable coming down here to pray and have other people pray for you, please don't. All I'm trying to do is offer you a space and offer you a place to be prayed for and for you to pray and for us to repent and ask God to awaken our sleeping souls. And all I can do is plead with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says, we try and persuade men to come to repentance. All I can do is seek to try and persuade you, but only God can transform you. But listen, I'm not ignorant. I know that there are people in this room that need to turn back to God. And you know why I know that? Because I need it. And sometimes you guys look to me and you look to the other elders of this church as if we're the ones with all the answers and we're the ones with all the spiritual life. And in, in, in reality, I'm just as guilty as anyone else as becoming self-reliant and becoming self-deceived, becoming stubborn and hard of heart towards the voice of God. And there are times in my life and I'm in a season now where I need to come before God and say, God, revive me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Bring new life to my soul. Fill me with the Holy Spirit again. Refresh me by the rivers of living water that Jesus came to offer that he speaks of in John 7. And so in a moment, after I pray, we're going to sing the song. And then when Brendan calls you forward, I invite you to come forward and pray. Be prayed for by your, by your brothers and sisters in Christ and pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We did this in the 9 a.m. gathering and God moved powerfully. I pray that he does the same here. But again, you can sit in your seat if you're not a Christian or anything like that. I understand this might be strange to you, but my hope is that you would see that as the people of God, we desperately want his power and presence to be made known or be manifest in our lives and be made known from our lives. And so we're gonna pray. Father, we come before your throne of grace. And Lord, again, we humble ourselves in your sight and we petition, we plead, by the blood of Jesus, that you would come, Holy Spirit, and you would do the work in this room that only you can do, God. God, you would convict, you would draw. God, you would bring about repentance and faith in the hearts of men and women that have been stubborn or obstinate towards you. God, that you would awaken sleepy Christians. God, that you would reveal to the nominal Christians that might be in our midst, Lord God, just how bad and how desperately they need you, God. And you would even draw those who do not know you, God, to come to know you this morning, that they would have their hearts regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would have their sins washed away by the blood of Christ, and that they would live their lives devoted to the glory of you, their heavenly Father. God, I know that you are capable and able, Lord God, to redeem men and women who are spiritually lifeless in this morning. You're able to resurrect the dead, God, and I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you do. Help us, God, where our hearts have become hardened and where, God, we have become stubborn and obstinate toward your voice, Lord. Lead us back to hear your voice and to respond to your voice in faith and joyful obedience, Lord God, to live out the redemptive purpose that you have for our lives in this church, God. Lead us back. I pray in Jesus' name.